This episode of the Better Two Podcast is brought to you by Kitty Mystic and DM Needham, author of My Days with the Dark Muse, as well as Love is Worth Waiting For. Hi gang, Donna here. Thanks for tuning in to the Better Two Podcast. Today's guest is Naima Alatunji. Naima has a very interesting story. She's wrote a book called Raised as a Lie. And she has two questions in the trailer that I had to pose to her because I think that it's a, these two questions can actually relate on a lot of levels to a lot of different people. And one is, how do you love and hate part of yourself? And the other is, how do you forgive when you can't forget? And that's a true statement because how many times has our past come back to haunt us? Anyway, I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Naima. How are you doing today? Good afternoon. I am phenomenal. Really, really grateful to be in this space with you. I'm glad you're here because your story is actually pretty amazing from what I, you know, I was looking at your website and two things that were on the website in your book trailer, I definitely want to talk about, but that's more, that's later on in your story. So tell us about Raised as a Lie, because obviously this is your better two moment all rolled into one in your book. So tell me about it. Yes, I am lucky enough to have had a really phenomenal program at the Creator Institute to help me become an author. I did not ever see that one really coming to fruition. I I don't know if you've ever had those moments where you've written things down or maybe thought things as a dream and... And never like, you're like, that's not going to ever happen. So I used to write down, I'm not a, I was never a journaler, right? And, but I used to write down on a goals list that I wanted to become a New York Times bestselling author. I have no idea how you even do that if you're not currently writing, but it was on the goal, right? I was on the goal list. And when my entire life came crashing down uh, last year, I was not prepared, A, because I I didn't think, like I thought I had been through it all, had done the difficult things, I had surpassed them, and I was a better person for it, and I'm 49, and I have arrived, and turns out I hadn't, and when I found myself down on the floor after begging some man that was never in a position to love me, not to leave me, I had to ask myself some really hard questions. Who told you that you weren't worthy of being loved unconditionally? Who told you that you weren't enough? And that requires some really deep self-introspection and then admitting that I couldn't do it alone. And that was really difficult. Um, I'm sure like many of the listeners can relate to, I grew up in a house that asking for help was a sign of weakness and a sign of weakness was never going to get you to your own goals in your dreams, because then you weren't going to be able to achieve them because of said weakness. And so it was better to show strength, right? Secret had um, a commercial that they ran, never let them see you sweat. That was a hundred percent my embodied virtue, never let them see you sweat. And so when everything crashed down around me, I had to do some really deep 
analyzing and, and I ended up in therapy and those journals, right? Like all the things that I was writing through that process became, uh, became a book. And it's about essentially overcoming childhood trauma and understanding that as an adult, if you do not heal, the wounds from your childhood, they will show up because they are running the show in every adult decision you make, only it's subconscious. And so you aren't fully aware that that's what's happening, but it is. And it was good to get work through that. And and it's a gift when you can work through it because a lot of people don't, they just ignore and they keep going. And I mean, I look at my I look at my father and he is still going through some of the trauma he experienced as a child, though he will never admit it. And it was funny because the other day I had texted him and we were because he can't hear. So we text and he sent me an article about being a widow. I cannot stand that word because it's a bad label. It sets you up for being scammed. I just don't like it. So he sends me the article and I'm like, I appreciate this, but I don't recognize this word. I don't like it. And he's like, I'm sorry. He's like, I said, I'm sorry a lot to people because I, I asked them to talk louder or I talk too loud and I'm always apologizing. And I made the statement to him and see, this is why I know my dad will never acknowledge anything. Made the statement to him saying, I've said, I'm sorry a lot through my life because mom used to blame me for her problems. And then he's like, well, take care. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. okay. So you're not going to deal, you're, you don't want to talk to me about what I've gone through and well, you're still dealing with your own stuff. So, okay. Yes. Yes. And sometimes we have to accept people for exactly where they are because we recognize that our healing is never going to come through them. That's not going to be the through way um, for which that we find our own peace and our own center. And it was so great of you to recognize that moment. Like, okay. I understand. Thank you. I I went, I guess where this all stems from me knowing him, because I used to look at him with rose colored glasses and then something happened. And I really just, I kind of took them off because when my, my half sister was, was murdered by her husband and her mm-hmm. kids were too, I, I heard him make the statement of, well, that closes that chapter. And when he said that, Granted, he wasn't, he left them when she was two and he was a weekend dad. When he said that, and there's 12 years between him and I, or her and I, when he said that, it just, it cut me to my core of how can you say that about your own flesh and blood? And it was like that moment and with some other things just made me go, I don't want to talk to you. He got very political. Our politics didn't go together. And I was just like, I'm done. It wasn't until my husband passed that we kind of reconnected. Mm-hmm. But I realized during that, even that, it's like my journey is not the same as your journey. Yeah. And even though we both experienced losing our spouse in our arms, basically, it's still not the same journey. Yeah. And so I accept you for who you are and I love you because you're my father, but we're never going to have that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And accepting and loving people for who and what they are and recognizing them, I think is the greatest freedom because we give other people grace. And when we give other people grace, what we essentially do is 
dose douse ourselves with it, right? Like we we embody grace when we're able to give it away. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did with your dad. That's pretty amazing. Well, there was this conversation, there was a couple of weeks ago or a month ago, he said something to the effect that he would never he wouldn't change anything about his past. Mm. And I took that because my dad has always been, I always considered a functioning alcoholic. I've been corrected by saying, by saying he just abused alcohol because he was able to walk away. He was able to walk away without a problem. So therefore he wasn't an alcoholic. I'm like, okay, fine. But when he says, I wouldn't change anything about the way my life was, that tells me you have no regrets about how you treated your kids. So Mm -hmm. therefore ergo, He's going to be who's going to be. And he said, if he had the chance, he would do it all over again. So what does that tell you? Right, 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 right. But I want to, you know, these are the two things that really hit. And I know that a lot of people can understand this. I think this is, I don't want to say it's a generational thing because every, a lot of people have experienced it, but I think Gen Xers, we kind of had this whole, we had this weird thing because our parents were hippies, but they weren't hippies and they were a little bit more about open about their emotions, but they weren't. So it's kind of a weird thing. And two things that you wrote in your trailer that really stood out was how do you love and hate parts of yourself? And how do you forgive when you can't forget? And those are two very true statements, especially about the time we grew up in because we were get, we were constantly sent mixed messages that you were this but no, you're not. Yeah. You can do this, but no, you can't. Yeah. So yeah. in your experience, what made you decide that those two key statements, how did they resonate with you? You know, the I think the beautiful thing about the experience of writing my book, having conversations with other people, um, sharing family stories, family secrets with other people. What I have come to realize in and fully embrace is Maya Angelou's quote, we are more alike than we are different. And while I was referring to being raised as a white child in a white family and finding out later when I was nearly 18 that that was a lie relates to people on a very fundamental level of wherever they experienced inauthenticity either in themselves or those who were charged with their caregiving where they found that things weren't as they appeared or that there was some sort of family secret or um, this sort of experience where they could not fully be themselves. And maybe they were the family secret or the thing that, you know, folks were embarrassed or, or couldn't live up to or, you know, just socially felt unaccepted. And I love that. I love that we can all connect in that space and we can see each other then. And I think that that's probably been the greatest blessing that I never saw coming when I started this um, non-project, as I say, that <laughs> ended up as a book. Were you adopted or? No, actually I was not. I um, 
<laughs> so my, my mother, I believe in 1970, uh, when she found out she was pregnant with me, I think that she made a decision um, the moment that I came out and she realized at my birth, cause she was alone. I, a, my mom had uh, very quick labors <laughs> and I was born in the car in the front seat of a two seater um, car. And her husband had ran into the hospital, you know, parked the car haphazardly runs in the hospital, looking for some doctor or somebody to help. And she ended up birthing me alone. And oh, wow. She used to tell the story, and I write about this in the book, um, because I don't think that she knew the impact of her story, but she used to tell the story that when I came out, I wasn't breathing. And she was so afraid to lift up. She was wearing a very long dress, and she was so afraid to, uh, to lift up the folds of the dress for what she um, would find. And I wondered after I was 18 and found out um, the true, my true parentage, who my father was, was she also worried about the color of my skin? Because she married a white man who was blonde hair, blue-eyed, and... I have to believe that even though her and I never had this conversation, that that was a fear for her throughout her pregnancy. And then here she is birthing this child. And, you know, it's 1971 now. She, she lives in this extremely rural, small town that's extremely closed-minded and has a history of being very closed um, as it applies to diversity and ethnicity and she had to have had that fear. And then when, in fact, I came out this very, you know, dark haired, curly, I had lots of hair, very curly hair, brown eyes. She had to have went, right? Like, yeah. we just never had that conversation. So I can't, um, I, I can't know that. But I do know that the man on my birth certificate was not my father. And Everywhere I looked in my life, there was nobody who looked like me, who resembled me. And so I spent all of my formative years trying to find a place to fit in and to be accepted. And um, I don't think that I found that until well into my adulthood. And you're lucky you found it then because some people never find that. Agreed. Agreed. So... How many siblings did you have? I mean, I've seen pictures and my audience has not, but how many siblings did you have? I actually, um, I have an older sister and a younger brother. The picture that's on the cover is me and, or us and our, um, our cousins. So we lived on this farm and um, there was another two houses on God, a hundred acres. And, um, and one of them housed my brother's father, the man who's on my birth certificate, his sister, her husband, and their two boys. And so they're all in the picture. And when we take this picture and, you know, you can see from the cover, like, 
Like everybody was just pretending like nobody sees the elephant that's in the room. This very brown skinned girl with all of these curls that were, you know, in the picture, they're tied back in a ponytail. But, you know, when my hair is not in twists, it's very large um, Mm -hmm. curls. It is undeniable. And um, and I just sometimes like you sometimes you have to look back at your life and just laugh like (laughs) Nobody was talking about it. No, no. And I mean, I didn't realize until a few years ago, and my mom's been gone for 30 years this this last year. I didn't realize until I started unpacking my mother's behavior, how racist she was. And the reason why I'm saying this is because when my parents split, we moved in with my grandparents, her mom and dad, and Mm -hmm. I was the only Caucasian kid in the neighborhood. Uh, and I used to play stickball with them and everything else. Well, my grandpa died and they shipped me to Florida. And so when we come back, we're living in a different house. And I'm uh, like, uh, and, and I didn't have any friends now. I had no friends that there was no kids around. So she'd rather we have no friends than this. Then it gets worse. When we moved up to Shreveport, I had been at an all girl Catholic high school. And she asked me, she's like, do you want it? And this was when I was in New Orleans. And then she asked me, do you want to go to the Catholic girls school up here? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm done with that. I'd like to have boys in my life and stuff. Okay. Well, they move us to this neighborhood and my mother get, uses a fake address to put me at another high school mm-hmm. because she says, quote unquote, it's a bad school. Yeah. And the more I thought about it as an adult, I'm like, and, but my stepfather was, or my stepbrother was going to the junior high school. And my stepsister went to the junior high school, but the high school was bad. Right. Because at that point, do you not like, I think that we start questioning, right? Like, because we, we see as children, but we're not having the conversations, right? Like, and I think that it's so interesting because you formulate these ideas and these thought process um, from all the experiences that you have. I remember being three years old and knowing that I looked like nobody is was willing to have the conversation. Um, my I have a my sister is seven years my senior, and she was an extremely miserable person, and so she was. Um, she was my tormentor. And so she would say all of these really awful things. I had no way of refuting them um, because I just didn't have a language. Like she was right there. I was different. I didn't look the same. And only the things that she would say were really horrible. And the fact that no other adult was willing to have the conversation or say something to me, and yet we formulate these ideas. And so here you are knowing something is amiss and it's not right, but you're not having those conversations with your mom. And so I, I well, totally get that. And if I would have asked, she would have just said, it's not safe. That, I did ask. I'm like, why well, can't, because I worked at the McDonald's in, in the area. Oh, oh, so okay. I'm like, why, why can't I? No, it's not safe. Okay. Yeah. I challenged her a lot. And the thing is, you know, as I went to college and even after that, it's like, I, I was always thinking that we were more of a melting pot than we were, that we had better, that people weren't as racist, wow. but that was my perception because I wasn't. But I yes. grew up, you know, it's like I didn't grow up with her all the time. And there's a whole nother caveat to that one. But 
it's just, it's interesting when I look back and say, you were just not who I imagined you to be, lady. Do you know what's so interesting that you say that is I think that as adults, that we, when we look back, some of the things that I was right, when I was writing, I was like, like, this is really bad. But we normalize it as children because it is our norm. That's, it's just what we know. We normalize it for that reason, but we also like the really super trauma bits, we tend to mask. I, I, I've talked about this before because, you know, it took me until I was 52, 51. I was over at a friend's house and we we're talking about life and everything. And I'm talking about how my mother tells me my stepfather wants, does great pedicures and he wants to do a pedicure on me and he'll buy me a nice pair of shoes. I didn't think anything about it. And as I'm talking to her at 51 years old, 52, I'm sitting there going, wait a second. Because then it goes to my mind that when my mom died and I was going through her things, I found videotapes of her feet. Just her feet, nothing else. He's got a full fetish and you didn't know it. No. And my mother knew this. And my mother later on accused me of sleeping with this man. When I had nothing to do with this man, I hated the man. Basically, there was only a few times where I didn't hate him. But my mind, what I'm getting at is my mind did not even acknowledge it. Just right, right, right. Yes, I would agree. Yes, so, that's what happens. And when I, when I look at the fact that when he, him and I had a physical fight and his hands were around my throat for a long time, I would sit there and say, oh, we had a physical altercation. When I hit my 40s, it was like, ding, ding, light goes on. Uh, no, he was trying to kill you. Right. Yeah. But, but our mind, when we're there. younger, just sugarcoats it so i mean how do you how do you deal with somebody knowing that somebody was trying to kill you right right so that even in your situation i think your mind had to play tricks on you to keep you in a safe space yes i 100 agree 100 agree and i think that that's you know the job of you know our our mind is to be protective, that ego protects us and allows us to live in a space and function within a space because this is where we're at. And what, what else are you going to do? Right. Right. I mean, if you acknowledge that as a kid, how, how tormented would you be? How freaked out would you be? Right. I mean, I can only imagine now thinking back if my mother, when my mother accused me of sleeping with him, which I never did. I would have to say, I would turn around and look at her and go, you let the man touch my feet, knowing you put me in harm's way. And, and, you know, knowing he has a foot fetish, is that sexual assault? Right, right, right. You (sighs) volunteered me up. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's just one of those things where it's like, I'm glad I didn't know when I was younger. I didn't put all that together. Yeah, I would agree. That's helpful. So you you how did you you're a chiropractor? So how did being a chiropractor, you know, you couldn't practice necessarily when COVID was going on? Oh, such a great question. I actually so we uh, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and our governor was pretty supportive. Um, we um, we were considered. Uh, essential workers. And I never closed my practice. As a matter of fact, when some of my friends who work in different professions and fields were anxious to get out of the house and go back to work, I remember feeling like I'm exhausted. I I would like a day off, right? We 
We never slowed down. Um, and we showed up every single day. And um, and so that's, that's the, I think, that the greatest blessing is when you know the truth about health, that it's an inside job and that your immune system controls um, all part, all aspects of how that we react to our environment, then the greatest blessing is to make sure that it's functioning at its most optimal. So for us to show up and, um, at work every single day and see our, um, our patients, you know, using obviously responsible protocols and all um, safety measures considered, we showed up every single day and did exactly what we needed to do. And we never had an issue, not one time, all of our people showed up, um, you know, and they just, their families just kept getting healthier and healthier. We see entire families. And so that was a huge blessing. Nice. Cause my chiropractor, they, her family got COVID. So she closed her practice for a while and I was like, okay, we'll see yeah. what happens next. Yeah. So yeah. you also are an entrepreneur. I am. I am. I get to own the practice that I work in, although the joke is that I just work there <laughs> because my front, um, my front office, my uh, two assistants are probably two of the most incredible women I know. And I am very, very lucky to have them as part of my team. And so oftentimes um, are the adjusting rooms are in the back and sometimes I get to come up front and then they just look at me like, what are you doing outside? <laughs> go back, go back there, do what you do your job. And so the joke is, is that I just work there. Um, but I do, I love it. I love creating my own space. I've worked in other people's offices and I am honored and grateful to be able to show up and serve in the way that we do because I get to, you know, make those decisions. And I think going from an employee mindset to an entrepreneur mindset, it took me a minute to make that shift. And there were many times that I was like, who makes that decision around here? And then the realization, especially in that first year, like I get to, mm -hmm. I get to do that. Right. So that that's been pretty exciting. When I first opened, I wore slacks, dress flats and a button up shirt and, or a nice um, blouse and sometimes even a blazer every single day um, to practice. And at the end, maybe after the second year, I was miserable. My feet were killing me. I was like, I don't, I, I'm so unhappy. And it took the advice of another author um, who had written a book um, called The Worthy Wardrobe. And it was essentially about the emotions that go behind the clothes that you put on every day and, and how they make you feel. And we had a whole conversation and she said, you know, I help people every single day in the executive C-suites. And she said to make these women feel the most powerful, where, where do you find power? I was like in jeans and chucks. And she was like, so wear jeans and chucks. We'll just get logoed shirts so that you look professional in your polo, but you've got every single day. I wear jeans, chucks, and a logoed shirt. And I can't tell you the difference that it has made. 
I get to make those decisions. And that's pretty dope to me. It is. I was going to say, you know, when you think about where you came from, how you say that you weren't breathing to now, I mean, you have this big presence. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. I love that. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. um, When I got married, I, uh, I had, I had tennis shoes on. I'm not going to lie. I had the white formal wedding dress and I had tennis shoes on underneath. I loved heels, but I have a bad back. So I'm not going to wear heels with the bad back. So yeah, I had white tennis shoes. I love that. You you got to do what you got to do, you know? Yes. Be you in all moments. Exactly. So you're a cyclist as well. I am. I am. As a matter of fact, I just this morning sent um, sent out a so in Georgia or at least in it. In Atlanta, there's part of a newer freeway um, that's called the Georgia 400. And um, I don't know the exact length of it, but they have this cyclist event that they call Georgia 400 um, because part of the event is you get to ride three miles on the actual freeway. They shut it down from one exit to another exit, which is three miles. And you get to ride on that um, at the very beginning. So they only shut down the freeway, you know, in one direction for about 30 minutes. That's about how long it takes everybody. And there's literally hundreds of people who sign up for this event. And so it's coming around again in June. And last year, um, I so I signed, I bought my first bike as an adult for myself, um, COVID, uh, my birthday in month, April in 2020. And I started riding for recreation. And then of course, because I'm me, it became this big, huge, you know, ordeal that my son, my teenager at the time, I was like, yeah, we're going to ride together. He was like, you're doing too much, ma, you're doing too much. And so he sort of bowed out and I kept going. And so I wanted to challenge myself and do more and more and more. And last year at that event, I rode um, a six, uh, 60 miles. Wow. And this year I want to do a hundred miles, which is called a, a century. Right. And so I sent that out today, this morning to a friend, like, I want to do this. And so June 25th, hopefully that's what we, hopefully that's what we'll be doing. We'll be riding a hundred miles. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's a pretty amazing feat. Yeah, I'm. 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 So I say I'm excited about it because I am, but like, it's a lot because there's a lot of hills. This is not flat land, mind you. They intentionally create these routes with some of some of these climbs. You're just like I thought that Georgia didn't have mountains. (laughs) Like that's what it feels like. And so I'm I'm excited though because when you when you're done, man that feeling like, did I just do that? So. Exciting. And then you get the heat to contend with because it'll be June. So yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But there's that. There's, there's that part. It'll be a fun time for you though. I mean, yes. it, if it's your passion, then that's, that's yeah. what you need to do. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to circle back. You said you hadn't had that conversation with your mom. Have you, do you still talk to your family now that the truth that you've embraced your truth? Do you still have close relationships with your family? The what allowed me to be a hundred percent free in writing the book um, is knowing that I couldn't have written it 10 years ago or prior to that. So both of my parents died uh, 10 years ago 
Um, and I, I think that I had spent a lifetime being a self-appointed protector to my mother. She, uh, the man who was on my birth certificate was a very abusive um, man. And I, at a very early age in life, assigned myself that role and nobody else asked me to do it. And so growing up, what I found is that I also protected my mom against my own emotions and was not a hundred percent demanding of the things that I needed. And I am a middle child. So for me in my family, what that meant was, you know, my sister, as I stated earlier, we just struggled a, a lot. And because she was seven years older than me, uh, you know, she hit teenage years, you know, well before me. And she had, you know, struggled with alcohol and drugs and she became a teen mom. And, you know, she was out of the house and really just had a tough time. And I felt an even greater responsibility, you know, to be the good kid. Um, and then my brother, you know, followed a similar route. And I was like, what is happening in the world right now? I knew that I looked different, um, even though nobody was willing to have those conversations. I, and I kept secretly saying to myself, like, that's the reason why <laughs> Like, these blonde haired folks don't know what to do in the world. But you know, I, I just have a better sense of self and, and, or maybe I just didn't get caught at the things that I did. Um, and so allowing myself as an adult to sort of explore that was probably just a really long unfolding. And my, my mother and I, it took me, it took me a minute to sort of figure out after she told me the truth when I was 18, how to be in the world and probably maybe about three years into us really trying to struggle and figure out what that relationship was really going to look like. Um, I started finding more grace in my heart. And when I became a, a mother, that's when I truly saw my mother. I met my mother in becoming a mother myself. And I had a lot of grace to give her. And she was an incredible woman. I truly think that my mom is the reason I am the person I am. And I, I credit her with the the tenacity that she showed in all things. And so I think that that just allowed me to, to give her even more grace, but to be a hundred percent transparent, I couldn't have written the book freely while she was alive. And while I don't dishonor her in the book, I do tell the truth. And I wouldn't have done that when she was living. I, I was still protecting her. So it's it's nice to be able to be in the space to write the book freely, but also it feels like I'm telling a story that she couldn't ever have told. Right. And I mean, I was talking to somebody recently about the fact that we sometimes we tend to want to save our parents. We want to save, oh. especially if we're parenting ourselves. It's like, you know, for me, yeah, most of my 
childhood at a certain point it was rescuing mom it was pleasing mom it was saving her as much as i tried to you know and the thing is that we don't know is we can't we can't save anybody else but we never we're too young to think about that it's like the, the old adage when your parents tell you oh well, wait till you grow up you're going to realize life's not that easy and you're like oh you don't know what you're talking about yeah okay maybe you did but <laughs> yes. we're not going to talk about that but yeah. i mean seriously we always try to save somebody it's like and, and i look back as much as i love my husband i think at a certain point he fit the criteria for me to try to save him yeah i mean i love him don't get me wrong i loved him to pieces but i also knew going in you know when i when i look back it's funny because i can click the boxes it's like well he needed help he needed to be saved okay yeah and eventually he was going to pass and you know that. So there's that abandonment issue that you get to re-trigger all over again. Mm -hmm. And it takes a, it takes, it takes stepping back to be able to actually realize and recognize that that doesn't diminish the fact that I loved him, but that is part of the truth of the relationship. And I don't think we ever look at our relationships, honestly. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. I, I would absolutely agree. I would absolutely agree. And I think that sometimes peeling back those layers seems so scary and so terrifying to us that the idea is formidable and we choose not to. And in that election, not to analyze and go down those very dark rabbit holes. Um, I think that we think that we're keeping ourselves safer when the truth is, is that we are preventing ourselves from living our most freeing, our most authentic life, because what's beyond those stories that we have been telling ourselves and the meanings that we have derived from the experiences is freedom and joy. And, but we don't know that not until we've, you know, undergone all of the hard stuff and the tears. <laughs> well, the one thing I will, the one thing to his credit, I will say, he is one of the few people that loved me unconditionally. So that, you know, as, as I sit here and say, check boxes, that is the biggest gift anybody can ask for. And because he was losing his vision, it didn't matter how I looked. Yeah. He loved me for me. Yeah. And that is a rare gift in yeah. this day and age. Yes. And when you find it, because you can often find yourselves through somebody else's vision of yourself, because, you know, we also layer ourselves with the world's opinions, right? Mm -hmm. And when we can pull those back and we get an opportunity to see somebody who sees us with this wonderful light and you're just like, me? That's mm -hmm. me? Are you sure? Yeah. yeah. The first time I met him, um, first time I met him, I was going to a tarot party. It was a New Year's Eve event that I was working and I was all dressed up and I didn't really think anything. It was like, hi, bye. And then later on, he told me, it's like the first time I saw you, I thought, wow, she's way out of my league. And I was just like, me, me. How awesome is that? Oh, it's awesome. I just kept going, me, you're way mistaken. But yeah. How amazing is that? I love that. I love that. <laughs> so, I mean, it's one of those things we don't necessarily see. And that's the, the one thing we let outside factors, whether yeah. it be skin color, weight, whatever. We let those outside factors put a layer on us, as yes. you were saying. And then we never look past that because it's like, okay, this is my role. This is how I'm supposed to play this game. 
But the fact is, it's not. You're supposed to yes. be you. And until somebody actually starts pulling that off, it's like I was talking to somebody the other day and was like, so when somebody goes, so I really like your blouse. And you immediately go, instead of thank you, you're like, oh, well, I got it over at such and such on sale at such. A... Nobody right. asked that. No, no. Except the compliment. Yep. This old thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But we're, we are so triggered. We are so taught to mash, tap down the ego. Do not yep. accept the compliment. And compliments make you feel weird. So just go, okay, well, yeah. I got it on sale. Who cares? Right. Wasn't the question. No. She it wasn't was- asking to go buy it. No. <laughs> she didn't know the, need to know the clearance rounder that it happened to be on in the box in the way back, tucked underneath the thing. Yeah. No, but, I mean, is it because we're proud of our shopping prowess? I don't know. But I, mean, <laughs> I mean, sometimes I've gotten a really good deal. Like if you're a Wang purse for $20, it's yes. like, yeah, but you're going to scream that from the rooftops, but you're absolutely right. We, we, I think we have to become much more aware when we make the dismissive comments because they are designed to uplift us, right? Somebody saw you in a moment or they saw your shopping prowess. They saw saw a beauty that you maybe weren't paying attention to in that moment. They brought it to your attention. And this idea of dismissing it is unfortunate because I think that what we do as the great Patti LaBelle says um, in her book, we block other people's blessings when we don't accept the gifts that they're offering us. And some, and compliments are in fact a gift, right? Yes, they are. Yeah. I will say, I got to see Miss Patti LaBelle at Live Aid. I was, yeah! in, I was, I was in the, the stadium and I had been down in the, the crowd for a long time, but we actually had seats. And at this point, she was late in the show and was like, you know what? I'm tired. We're going to go up. So we went and sat in our seats and her mic went out. You know what though? You could still hear her all the way up in the stands. Wow. Her voice was that phenomenal. It's one thing about Live Aid. I mean, there's many things about Live Aid, but that's one of those things about Live Aid that I still remember. And it was like, I give her props, kudos, because that is an amazing voice to be able to pull that off. Yes. Yes. God, so incredible. Her life story is pretty um, phenomenal. And I, I just, I love, love, love her voice. And just, man, the feeling that you get in the center of your chest when you hear her belt out her tunes, it's just like, ah, yes. And it's not, and here's the thing, it's not auto-tuned. It wasn't all what it is. I mean, not discrediting anybody today, but this is pure, this is a pure voice. Yes. Yes. It's not doctored. And that's why I was just blown away. You know, when I look at Lady Gaga, when Lady Gaga first came out, I'm just like, okay, so here we go with another process voice, da, da, da. And then I saw her in Saturday Night Live sit down at the piano, just her and the Mm -hmm. piano. And I was like, okay, she's got a real voice. Mm. it's pretty amazing but nice it just takes a while i mean there's so many people out there that mask their voice and goes back to those those layers what are we supposed to put out there what are we supposed to entertain how am i going to make it right absolutely absolutely gosh that's amazing. I'm glad you had those opportunities. And thank you for sharing because I feel like I saw Patty LaBelle at Live Aid. It was awesome. I mean, I didn't get to see Lady Gaga at Saturday Night Live, but I saw that on TV. But Patty, I mean, just 
just seeing her was, and granted, she was a speck because we were up in the stands, but still, you knew. And you could see her on the Jumbotron because that was the new thing back in the 80s. But yeah, it was it was an awesome show. It really was. And I'm glad I got to go. I won tickets off the radio to go. So What? I assumed you went because you had spent time um, in the radio business. No, at the time, I was, I was, I was 17 years old. And my friend and I um, stayed up three nights in a row and we counted how many times they played the studio on the radio and you had to be caller number one or nine. And she was caller number one. I didn't know I was caller number six. Uh, And then then a future friend was caller number nine. And so we flew from Shreveport. It was airfare, hotel and tickets to the show. So I flew from Shreveport, went to the show and yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's incredible. I remember those times trying to call into the radio station and get picked. That's awesome. It was always easier with a with a uh, push button phone, but a rotary phone. Yes. My mom wouldn't upgrade. I was like, mommy, we're never going to win. Do you think that woman cared? She was like, I was raised by parents who were raised in the depression. You aren't getting a push button. Uh, yeah, I remember one time I was trying to win tickets to a concert in Texas and I was working in the, at Albertsons and I was working in the, the produce department and the only phone to get to, this is before cell phones, yeah. was the produce, was the, the bakery. So I had to run from the produce department through the back all the way while they're baking bread and everything to dial the phone and get through. And about the 10th time I got through, the DJ recognized me. I still wasn't the caller, but he stopped. He's like, I said, look, I'm trying. I'm working. Dot. And I was like, you know what? I'll put your name on the side. He's like, I said, okay. So I didn't get picked. And then I get a call the following Saturday. I come home from work. My mom's like the radio station called. They wanted to talk to you. I'm like, okay. So I call and the girl who won, this is so weird because the girl who won actually was my old boss's ex-wife. No, I didn't even know. Okay. Didn't even know. Anyway, she said, they, they, the DJ tells me, well, the winner doesn't have anybody to take. And since you were so super excited, you were like the, one of the most excited people. She wants you to go with her. Oh my, okay. My gosh, what a blessing. And then we showed up at the radio station. I'm like, I know you. She goes, yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it was a wild time. I mean, I've had some awesome moments. I've had some crappy moments in my life, but I've had some fantastic moments in my life. I love that. I love that story. That's incredible. So you just, you got to keep, that's what I always look at. You know, you were, your book raised as a lie. Even though you're raised as a lie, look at how you're thriving. Look yeah. at what you've done with your life. And the thing is, we can choose to get stuck in trauma, which I'm sure there's days you still have maybe a bad day. Yeah. But you're, you've, you're succeeding, you're excelling, and, and life is, you know, awesome for the most part. It's so freaking amazing. Every, every time that life has become a lot um, what I can pin, what I can sort of make um, the pinpoints of that journey. And I can look back over that is when I got to a place where I could be grateful, not for the thing. I'm not that evolved people, <laughs> but when I could be grateful for something, right. I could find one thing um, to be grateful for is when things began to shift every single time without fail, 
And so for me now to be almost 51, I feel good. I look, you know, good. I, I work really super hard. We're about to do this triathlon in April and I am, I'm beyond grateful. Like there's no other word that encompasses that feeling that sort of the, the, the river that runs through my life. Like it's the current that's constantly flowing. Cause while there are issues, man, Michael Bernard Beckwith says that pain pushes you until your vision pulls you. And I embodied that statement for such a long time that I, I think that I was, I was running my life through pain until I decided to embrace the vision and immerse myself there so that my life can resemble the thing that I always wanted it to look like. And it does. And it's just getting better every single day. And I want to go back to when you first started talking, you talked about how you were on the floor mm-hmm. because of a man. And the yeah. thing is, I bet you, I don't know if you're in a relationship now because COVID's weird, but I bet you the next relationship, you will be more empowered and you will take more control over you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I am dating somebody now and I, it's so incredible because I promised myself that I would never show up again in another relationship being anything other than who I am. And what I had started to, you know, all things happen exactly as they should, when they should. And I was married for 22 years. And when that marriage ended, it was devastating because I got married to stay married and we had three kids and, and unfortunately we broke it. Like it, it was tragic. And six years after divorce, I started thinking, Oh my gosh, am I going to be alone? I'm, I'm 40. I was 49. Um, the relationships that I had been in post the divorce hadn't worked out. I dated a lot of guys. I was so over it. And I was like, I'm a hundred percent. I'm going to be a cat lady. Only I hate cats. Like I'm, I'm not a cat lady. Like what, what am I supposed to do? And my, my youngest was 17. He was about to turn 18. He wanted to be a pilot. He knows exactly what he wants. I knew he was leaving home. I was going to be, you know, an empty nester and I'm going to be by myself. Like, man, that sucks. And this is pre-writing the book, right? So I don't realize that when tragedy stri- strikes and I um, um, and a child dies um, and he's 13 in my family and my heart is just in pieces and I don't know how to put all of these things together, being alone and, and, and worried about my own children and their own mental health. And what does that look like? And then in walks this man into my life. And I think this is it. This is the reward. This is everything that I've been waiting for. So of course it's going to be phenomenal. And I put everything. And I do mean everything on a man who was never designed or capable of giving me what it is that I needed, but I put everything on him. And so when he walked out of the door, 
I felt shattered, not broken, shattered. I felt like I, I'm never going to be able to put these pieces back together. And it was simply because I did not look internally. I didn't look inside. I wasn't doing the self-reflection. I thought I was good. I was 49. I was a successful doctor. I had my own practice. I was raising kids. Like I thought I was good. And the truth is, is those are just layers and um, of, of titles and accomplishments um, that I have put on like an outfit, like a uniform. But when I dug everything down deep um, to the core, I realized that, that there were some really unhealed parts that needed to be addressed. And so he showed up so I would write a book. I just didn't know it then. And I am grateful. And so now the relationship I'm in now, sometimes we have conversations. He's like, mm, is that a little too honest? <laughs> is that a little too much? And I was like, really? Is it? Because I feel like it's not. <laughs> so that's that's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun being this honest and this in, t- in tune with who I, am, who I am, how I want to show up in the world, how I want to love, and how I can meet you where you are, but from a place of wholeness and not a place of I'm trying to conform to whatever it is that you need and want so that you won't leave me. That's not a good place. Like nothing good is going to come from that. So I appreciate being here in this space and and learning some of those pretty hard uh, hard won lessons. Yeah, at twenty two. I had that that whole thing of oh my gosh, I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life. I'm like, if I could go back, I would just go slap slap. No 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 no. Don't don't. You got years to go, honey. Yeah, don't yeah. worry about it. Yes. But I, I think when you're coming from a bad background, you start looking at, is this what life is? Yes. And, you know, if I could give anybody advice that's younger than me, way younger than me, I would say, slow your roll. There's always a change coming. This isn't the end. Just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Because the only thing constant about life is change. Exactly. Exactly. So is there anything else you want to add? <sighs> Thank you for having me on my on your show. I love having these conversations. I love connecting at this level where we're just sharing stories. What I think that becoming an author for me is the opportunity to have these conversations. And I never imagined how much that it would enrich my life. So I do appreciate that uh, so much. And um and I hope people buy the book so I can have more conversations. <laughs> well, then maybe you can write another book. Yes, yes, yeah. As soon as, um, you know, after you push out a baby mm-hmm. and they, you know, and you're holding your baby and you're like, yes, this is amazing. And then the amnesia comes with all of the, you know, months and days of being pregnant and all the hours of pushing out said baby. And you're like, yeah, I'll do it again. Um, I haven't held my book yet. Um, so 
we will, we're going to reserve the let's go write another book until at least that happens. We actually, today is February 1st. So Thursday, February 3rd, the book will arrive and we are doing this big, you know, unboxing celebration in my practice with all of my patients and and friends and just enjoying that moment of just pure celebration. And so, after that, then we'll talk about writing another book. Right now, I'm just going to celebrate. I understand. I mean, the first time I held my book, it was just like, wow, I wrote this. It's actually a long-term dream come true. It's it's an amazing experience. It really is. And yes, you described it perfectly. It is a baby. I've never had kids physically, but it is a baby because all the things you have to go through. Yeah. Yeah, you birthed that. This feels like my fifth child. I have three walking around the earth. I have one practice and now one book. Well, all of it is, you know, you are giving birth to creativity, birth to even your practice. It's a creative idea that you formed into something tangible. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that everything is an idea before it becomes the thing. It's just an idea. And to watch an idea become manifest yeah man yeah I'm an, and I'm i mean we i don't think we ever acknowledge that it's like you know it, it has to grow it's like a seed you have to plant it and you have to water and nurture it yeah 100%. yes how many books have you written i've written two and i have two that i'm currently well actually three that i'm currently working on kind of four because i'm writing two <laughs> well i'm writing the thing is i'm writing I'm writing one that is a two people. It's a couple's point of view. And right. then the other one is the, the, another guy's point of view of this couple. And yeah. Wow. So, yeah. That's exciting. Well, then I have a question for you. I can't even imagine trying to do more than one writing project at a time. How do you, how do you manage that? How do you how do you get in one space and then shift and get in another space to be able to create like that? Lunacy, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, here's the thing. I mean, I've written. Okay, so while I say I have four books written, I have other books that are in this series that are in. But you know, if a scene comes to me, um, I'll go ahead and write it. Even mm-hmm. if it's four books away, I write that scene and yes, it'll change, but it's there. It's mm-hmm. a touch point. Mm-hmm. So I have a, um, I have a path for them to head to. Oh, I love that. So that's why it's kind of, you know, if I, if I'm stuck writing a scene and I can tell you this for a fact, I'll be sleeping sometimes in three or four o'clock in the morning. One of my characters wakes, you know, I'll wake up and if I have a tangible thought in my head, here we go. Here's an idea for you. I better record it or I better get up and write. If I'm driving down the road, same thing. So it's like, this is how I can do that because the ideas come, I have to work on it. And it's easy, you know, as, as complicated as it seems, I'm writing this from this, this couple's point of view and then having his point of view. It's not that hard because I'm taking, if they're in all interacting, I have his version of events versus their version of events. Man, that is so incredible because I wrote a memoir because I know how the story ends Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I lived the story and I am the character that makes sense to me. What I am always, I always have been in awe is authors 
and writers who create from nothing. And the amount of respect and and just intrigue that I have is it, it's just incredible. What you create is it's magic. And I love to be the reader. I love to, to, to be the consumer of said magic because I, I'm enthralled with that process. And that's, that's so incredible. I've never had anybody explain that to me like I was, that. I was on Sharifa Hardy's show, uh, the Roundtable Talk show, and her and I became friends and everything. And she did a solo interview with me. And I wrote my second book in a month. And then I added to it because there's a whole story, but I wrote it and she so she's like, I'm really, I want a copy. I'm like, okay. So I give her a copy. And when we're doing the solo thing, she's like, how do you do this? She's like, if it would be me, I would have had them fall in love. And that would have been, it It would have been two pages long end of story. She's like, but this book had twists and turns. And how do you do this? I'm like, it just do, it just comes. I have a really weird creative mind. And dare I say some of that past trauma to protect myself, I, yeah, had escapism. So instead of turning to drugs, alcohol, or whatever, I turned to the word, the written word, and just started writing in high school. So, yeah. And before that, I used to stick myself into TV shows as a kid. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's amazing. And isn't that why we respect um, the artists that we do? You, I think Adele became the sensation she did because we all felt her pain. We all felt her journey. When she sings those songs, she's not talking about something that she hadn't experienced. We feel it because it's authentically hers, but it's also ours. She's singing our stories. And I, 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 I can imagine although not there, that's not where my writing will ever come from, but I can't imagine the honor it is having your characters come through you yeah. because I don't, it, what it sounds like is you're not birthing them. You're giving life to them and animating them in a way that they have asked you to. And that's incredible. Well, the first book days, my days with dark views, I started out as a marketing piece. It was going to be for this 30-year novel. I started as a marketing piece and I started writing as a blog. So I was doing daily per- posts on WordPress and I was having rehab centers follow because he's a drug addict. The guy is a drug addict, alcoholic, bass player. It's his journal. So I'm writing like a little journal entry and they start to have rehab centers following. And I'm like, okay, so you're thinking this is real. Obviously, if you're following me, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to turn this into a book. So I did. And I've had men tell me, I can't believe a woman wrote this. I'm like, Okay. And my husband used to joke because he would say, you're never going to get a book out before I die. He got two out, but he's like, when I would read him, Nigel, because he would go to dialysis, I'd go write and I'd pick him up and I'd share what happened. He's like, man, Nigel's my hero. (laughs) That's dope. Like, really, babe? Yeah. Yeah. You you got the male voice down. I'm like, okay. So, yeah. I love that. I'm also intrigued how we can, you know, fit ourselves into somebody else's experience and, you know, to use your words and nail it, just be right there in it. I mean, is it that it's just a human experience? I think, you know, I took acting classes when I was younger and I wanted to be an actress. And Mm -hmm. one of the things my acting coach told me is the same thing I apply to writing. You have to live in the moment. You have to be in that character's head 
during mm-hmm. that time. If you're not, I mean, dare I say, you have to be authentic. If you're not being authentic for that character, then it's going to show and people are going to recognize that this isn't right. So you have to be authentic. I, I can't, I mean, there's, there's times when guys, it's on TikTok and stuff where guys have written romance novels and the way that they describe a woman is like, there's no way a woman is even that way. But mm-hmm. it's very easy for a woman because I've been talked to inappropriately by men throughout my life because I'm busty. So I'm used to being around guys that are very slangy. So it was easy enough to do that. And, you know, having the father I had, who was very proud to do ridiculous things, it was very, my dad was a party guy. It was very easy to play that guy after watching him. So, interesting. I like that. I like hearing about that process. That's pretty incredible. Well, thank you. And thank you for coming on the show. I'm glad you did. So me too. Me too. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. You're welcome. So Nehemiah's journey to get to be where she is today is an amazing journey. And I think one that can really resonate with a lot of different people. When you look at the questions that I asked that she has on a book trailer, you know, all of us have can relate to that. All of us have the past coming back and we try to heal it, but sometimes something will trigger it and bring us right back to that moment. And all we can do is keep moving forward. We have to look though. We have to peel back the layers and look at who we really are. I mean, for her, she was raised one way and that wasn't the way it should be. She wasn't being able to be true to who she was. She wasn't able to embrace the beauty of who she was. And now she does. Now she's empowered. And I think if we can peel the layers back, the labels back of who we think we're supposed to be that was placed upon us as a child or a teen, we can move past those things. But we have to be willing to take the blinders off, take the rose-colored glasses off, and really see who we are. And that that takes a lot. And we have to be able to be willing to live in gratitude and be thankful for what we have. Sure, today might not be the best day in the world, but guess what? There is tomorrow. And we can always see something changing and something will be better. So on that note, if you want to leave me a question, comment, or you just want to be a guest on the show, you can do so at Donna, D-A-U-N-A, at Better2Podcast.com. That's Donna at Better2Podcast.com. If you want to follow the show, and subscribe. You can do that at better2podcast.com and you can also find our social media there as well. So I hope you enjoy the show today and I'll catch you next time, guys. Bye. Better Two Podcast is mixed, edited, and produced by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio Productions. 